This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Um, thanks for coming out on such an ugly day. Uh, my name is Troy Swanson. I'm one of the librarians. We're sponsoring this event. Um, each year we select a book, and then we do events and themes around that book and encourage our faculty members to teach that book in their classes. And this year our book is the um, autobiography of Malcolm X, and throughout this year, We've been exploring Malcolm X's life. We've been looking at the larger civil rights movement, and uh, we've been pulling different themes from that book. Um, So far this year, we've looked at Malcolm X, and we've looked at the 1960s, and what we're doing today is to try to take that discussion beyond the 1960s so that our debate, our issues do not end with um, Martin Luther King and uh, the, the civil rights movement that we study in our history books. We talk about where are we today. Um, so to do that, I'm gonna, I want to introduce uh, David Johnson, who's from South Suburban College. He's been um, a great partner in this program and uh, a good friend, and I'll let him introduce our panels. We're still waiting for one um, panel member, and as he arrives, we'll shuffle him up front. But we wanted to uh, be respectful of your time and, and get things going. So thanks for coming out, and we appreciate it. And here's Mr. Johnson. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good morning. And I also want to uh, commend Moraine Valley and Troy Swanson for the uh, very creative and powerful idea uh, that they're doing One Book, One School and choosing Malcolm X's autobiography. Uh, I think it's very significant and very important that uh, all students uh, learn about the, the relevance of Malcolm X to our contemporary Society. I also want to thank my old friend who, uh, when I went to high school, or was it when I was in elementary school? I better say high school because he looks younger than I do. Uh, Mr. Thomas, who was the um, president of my high school class at Thornton High School, and Homer has uh, always been socially conscious and a math whiz. Um, thank you, Homer, for bringing your students, and it's good to see you. And then I want to, yes. Um, then I want to thank each and every one of you for, for coming today and um, participating in this program. I just want to say a, a couple of words and then uh, turn it over to um, one of the uh, featured uh, panelists today. And um, what I want to say to you is that the candidacy of Barack Obama who did very well last night on Super Tuesday, is connected to the Civil Rights Movement. And we can trace the success of Barack Obama back to the Voting Rights Act of 1964, 43 years ago. The passage of that that act made it possible for African Americans and other people of color to exercise their constitutional right to vote without fear of harassment or intimidation. Now, I want to quickly point out that we we haven't gotten past uh, harassment and intimidation. It's just evolved into new forms. Um, And we can point to Florida. We can point to Ohio um, in the last election as examples of this new sophisticated form of intimidation. But it was the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act of 1964 
that made it possible for black people in this country to exercise the right to vote. And as a result of that, we've seen a tremendous increase in elected officials in this country. And even though we've seen a tremendous increase in elected officials, the African-American community is still underrepresented in the halls of government from the local level all the way up to Congress. And um, I, I want to come back and talk about that during the course of our discussion today. Uh, it's a generational issue that my parents' generation struggled, uh, my generation has struggled, and our job is to pass the torch on to your generation. And we have on the panel today a perfect representative of this transition from my generation to your generation. And I'm talking about Burvey Power, who is a civil rights attorney who practices here in the city of Chicago. I heard him on radio station WVON, 1690 AM. And I want to encourage you all to tune into that station. I heard him on the station and said, this is a young man that I need to know and other young people need to hear. And so I want to um, bring up Mr. Power and have him to give us some biographical information and talk about the work he does and, of course, put it in a broader social context. Very Power. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm very thankful and honored to have this opportunity to speak to you all. I got to let you know about three hours ago I was in Washington, D.C. and did not think that I was going to make it here, uh, but committed myself, so I definitely was praying real hard that the plane was going to take off. It was delayed, but we made it here on time and uh, came straight from O'Hare uh, right to uh, Moraine Valley to be with you all. I did not get an opportunity to give Mr. Swanson my bio before I left, and so I've been told multiple times that I need to give my background uh, to particularly students like yourselves just to give you an idea of what you all can accomplish when you apply yourselves. Now, I remember being a student myself and hearing different people speak, and, but for knowing their background, you know, I'm sure they inspired me when I came to speak in front of them. So I want to tell you a little bit about my background and then get into the topic today. Grew up right here in Chicago, uh, south side of Chicago. Went to public school, went to Beasley Academic Center on 52nd and State. Then I went to Limbloom High School on 61st and Walcott, which, you know, some of you know is in Inglewood, as they say, which is one of the rougher neighborhoods in Chicago. But nevertheless, I was there to get an education. Graduated from Limbloom. When I first started high school, I really wasn't interested in class. Had a D on every single report card, freshman year and sophomore year. Got a D out of science and got a D in history. I, was, I just couldn't win, you know. Studied hard in science, got the D off, got a D in history, got that off, then got a D in math. But then by the time I got to my junior year in high school, I realized I want to go to college at some point. Can't really do that with all these Ds on my report card. And so something just snapped in my head and started to apply myself. Could have done it all along, just wasn't quite interested at that time. Junior year came. 
first report card, six A's and a B. Right? And then finished on with a 3.8 grade point average and graduated 12th in my class. So what's the point I'm trying to make? Listen, you know, a, a letter on a piece of paper does not define your intelligence. If I let those letters on the piece of paper define my intelligence my freshman and sophomore year, I probably would not be standing here today. And so I'm telling you that intelligence is not determined by that letter on your report card. Intelligence is determined by what you do with what you know. And so my grandmother never made it to high school, but she had children that were lawyers, teachers, and scientists, but she never went to high school. And so clearly she was quite intelligent, if you ask me, because she made sure her children learned. But I'm saying that to you all so that you don't get discouraged if your grade point average is not where it needs to be. All you got to do is apply yourself just a little bit harder, and you can get there. Start at Morehouse College. Now, I came out of Limbloom, honors classes, AP classes, 12th in my class, got down to Morehouse. Didn't apply myself. You have to take these exams when you get to college entrance exams. So I was playing spades all night, right? So when that reading test came up the next day, which was just vocabulary, blew the test. So I started my college career at Morehouse in remedial reading. Now, I just left AP English, which is Advanced Placement English, and I was in remedial reading my first year in college. You know, I'm not embarrassed to say that at this point because obviously I'm out of college now. But we didn't even get credit for that remedial reading class. But then I realized I had to apply myself, and I did that. And graduated from college in three years with honors, right? Now, I'm not the smartest person in the world. I do work hard, though. So when I started law school, at 19 years old, in fact, I was applying to law school. So when I started law school, 20 years old, youngest person in my class. Now, you know, that kind of worked on me psychologically because everybody else was older. But nevertheless, was the only black male in my class of 110 students. Now, if you know anything about Morehouse, Morehouse is an all-black male school. So when I went from Morehouse to DePaul Law School, I had some issues to deal with because nobody in my class looked like me. And so after I got over that hurdle as well, graduated from law school in two and a half years at the age of 22 and started practicing law at 23. And so I've been out for over 10 years now, so don't let the young face fool you. But the point is, not the most intelligent person in the world, wasn't the smartest person in my law school class, but applied myself and make it onto radio stations so people can hear me and invite me out to panel discussions. So I'm glad to be here. Now let me tell you a little bit about civil rights in the current context from my vantage point. I want you all to take out a piece of paper and a pen if you have it. I want you to write down something. You all are students, right? I got pens somewhere, right? Now I need you all not to embarrass Moraine Valley. Now, civil rights in the current context is a little different than it was in the 60s, and it's going to look quite different in a few years from now, and I'll explain what I mean. When the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965, the idea was that people were being disenfranchised for no reason but because of the color of their skin. 
at that time in our history, our parents and grandparents believed that all you had to do was go to a certain school and everything was going to be all right. It was quite difficult to get into school even after the law said you can go, which is what we see with the Little Rock Nine and the nine children that needed the National Guard just to help them get into school so they can sit and learn. But at that time, we valued education more than we do today. At that time, we had a belief that education was going to answer our prayers just like we thought voting was going to answer our prayers. And so... We applied ourselves to school. We applied ourselves to the electoral process at that time. Now we're in a little different space because I used to do a lot of criminal law. And I'm out of criminal now. And one of the reasons why I'm out of criminal law now is because I was tired of representing criminals. Right? Representing guys 16, 17, 18 years old, carrying guns, shooting guns selling drugs, you know, and I realized maybe I want to do something a little more proactive with this education and law degree that I've been given. Not everybody was a criminal, and that's some of the cases. One of the, one of the cases I want to tell you about was a young guy, 16 years old. The police, he, got, he pulled a gun on somebody, another gang member, right? And so the gang member rode his bike off, called the police. The police said, well, where was he? He said, oh, he's in this house right here. The police said, oh, we know who that is. He's always in trouble. They knocked on the front door, walked in his house. He's sitting down eating McDonald's. Arrested him, brought him out. They said, where's the gun? Gun's in the garage. They go kick the door into the garage and find the gun and charge him with this crime. The boy went to the police station, signed a confession. Yeah, I had the gun. I pulled it on him. We beat the case. Why do we beat the case? Because the police just can't go in your house while you're not committing a crime and arrest you if they don't have an arrest warrant or a search warrant. And they can't kick in the door to your garage or your house if they don't have a search warrant and go look for evidence. So that kind of case, I didn't have any problem trying that case, even though he admitted that he did that. Because guess what? If I didn't fight that case, and win that case, that means the police can come kick in our door and look for stuff, find it, and then charge us with a crime. But the problem now is we're asking the police to come in to our house. The problem now is we're asking the police to pull us over. Why? Because you're playing your music past 10, windows down, marijuana smoke wafting out of your window, right? Standing on the corner at one in the afternoon doing nothing and you standing there by yourself you're not waiting on the ride but you're standing there we all know what folks doing on the corner at one in the afternoon standing there by themselves so we're asking the police now to come arrest us when before they did it just because of the color of our skin and so my issue now with civil rights is when i'm speaking to a crowd like you are is that we need to figure out what things that we need to do so we don't invite the police down on us because there's still are some police who are going to do that on GP, right? But going forward, you got to know that civil rights is going to look a little different in this country. Not just for blacks, but for whites and Hispanics and Asians and everybody. There's this website I want you to go to, if you haven't seen it already. It's called Zeitgeist 
movie. Z-E-I-T. G-E-I-S-T. Movie.com. Z-E-I-T. G-E-I-S-T. Movie.com. Now, it's two hours long, so make sure you got some time when you sit down. And I want to recognize my big brother, Eddie Reed, uh, that came in, that I'm going to soon yield the floor to him because he's much more... No, 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 take your time. ...first and experienced than I am. No, take your time. All right. Now, the reason why I want you all to watch this movie is because I, I just saw it myself, right? But it talks about what some of the absolutely super rich people in this world have planned for not just people in America, but people all over the world. And, you know, I don't subscribe to everything that's in the movie, but there's a whole lot in there that makes a lot of sense. And one of the general things on the, on the issue of civil rights is it talks about 9-11. And it talks about how 9-11 was not an accident, but it was staged. It was planned in advance. People knew in the United States government that this was going to happen. And in fact, may have assisted with allowing it to happen. You figure, why would somebody do that? So this movie talks about the history of all the major wars that have occurred in this country. And it talks about how every single one was scripted from World War I to World War II to Vietnam and now to the war on terrorism. Because everybody's clear now that the thing that got the United States government into the Vietnam War never happened. They claimed that an American vessel was uh, destroyed and blown up in the Gulf of Tonkin and now everybody knows it never happened. But there are some super powerful rich people who did that and orchestrated that and wanted the U.S. in there so they could make money. Not just make money, but at some point in the future be able to take all of our civil rights away so that they could run the whole world. Now, you watch the movie and you tell me what you think, but going to 9-11, what happened right after 9-11? There was the Patriot Act, right? And the Patriot Act gave the United States government the authority to come into your house when you're not there and look for stuff sneak and peek. So they can sneak in your house and peek around without a search warrant if they feel that you're a threat. Allows them to tap your phone, whether you're on the terrorist watch list or not. Allows them to read all of your email, whether you're on the terrorist watch list or not. They can hold you without charging you for a crime. We see that in Guantanamo Bay. If they say that you're a terrorist, they can arrest you and hold you thanks to the U.S. Patriot Act. And all that happened right after 9-11. And then it talks about in the movie, you know, the two towers came down, right? Because the two planes hit those buildings. But then there's another building that came down called Tower 7, which was maybe a block or so away. A plane didn't hit that building. But you know what was in the basement of that building? Not a bomb. There was a bank. Gold bars were in the basement of this bank. Now, there was a movie. Go watch this movie, Die Hard. Die Hard, the second one. 
with uh, Samuel L. Jackson. And you know what happened in that movie? Because they put it all out in the movies before it happens. In that movie, some people had a bomb in the New York subway. And when all the police ran this way, they went to the, U the Treasury Department and stole all these gold bars out the basement. And so that's exactly what happened with Tower 7. Because when you watch the movie, it shows you Tower 7 falling to the ground. You ever seen a, a hotel that's old and they want to destroy the hotel and it falls straight down? Well, this is what happened with Tower 7. But nobody's ever explained how that tower fell like that and a plane didn't hit it. But then they have experts in the movie that talks about how, listen, uh, there's no way both of these towers would have come down like that. Because in the middle of both towers, there were 42 steel beams from the floor to the top. So if, if the airplanes hit the top of the building, there's no reason why the steel beams underneath just collapsed like that. But then they're going to show you in the movie, one of the experts say, well, you want a building to come down like that and you want to implode it, you have to cut the steel beams at an angle. And so then one comes down, they all come down. And then they're going to show you in the movie a, a piece of the steel beam that was still left standing from the World Trade Center that was cut at an angle. So my point I'm trying to tell you is in a few years from now, civil rights are going to look a little different in this country. Because at the end of the movie, they talk about how President Bush has already signed an executive order to make the North America one country, from Canada all the way to Mexico. You hear about the dollar is falling now, the value is falling. Well, gold used to back up the dollar. Now it doesn't anymore. And that's why gold is so valuable now, because it's valuable in and of itself. A dollar bill is not. It's just a piece of paper. It was once backed by gold, and it's not backed by gold anymore, thanks to Nixon. So, with all these civil rights that we're talking about and we're fighting about, in a few years from now, there won't even be a U.S. dollar. There'll be something called the Amero. That's going to be the currency from Canada all the way down to Mexico. And you see it already. You know where? In Europe. You ever heard of the Euro? Right. Well, that's the currency over there now that's for 20 different countries. When each one at one point had their own currency. And so now the U.S. is going to have this one. Not the U.S., I'm sorry. North America is going to have this one currency called the Amero. And so what you're going to see in the future is more of your civil rights taken away. And so they implement these infringing, infringements on your civil rights a little bit at a time. So at one point you used to be able to get on the airplane and your friends and family could walk all the way to the plane with you, right? Now they can't. Then you used to be able to just walk on the airplane yourself without going through metal detectors. Now you do. Now you got to take your shoes off. You got to take your belts off. You got to take your coats off. You can't take any liquids, right? Every little step is conditioning every last one of us to not be concerned that we're having our civil rights taken away. You can't get on the plane with four ounces of lotion now, right? Oh, too much luxury. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Civil rights in the 60s look like one thing. Civil rights today looks a little different and look a little more different in the future. Let me tell you about this one case that I just finished as well to put an exclamation point on our civil rights today. Just tried a case where I sued the Chicago Police Department. And I alleged that the police killed this black man in the police department. The fact of the matter was this man was a world-renowned blues drummer played all over the world. 
got into a car accident. His vehicle was towed to a lot. And he was at the lot getting tools out of his van. His van. The owner of the lot didn't want him to take the tools because the owner, quite honestly, wanted to steal his tools. So he called the police owner. He said, this man's trespassing. Now, he didn't say, get this van off my lot. If the man was trespassing, why don't you let him take his van off your lot, too? So the van had to stay there while the man got arrested. So he got arrested. When he got to the police station, they said he had no signs of pain or injury. The police said that. We have his mugshot. Looks just fine. He called his girlfriend. I'm fine. I'll be out soon. It's just a misdemeanor. Three hours later, he was dead. But when they found him dead, his right hand was split open. He had bruises all over his hand and his wrist. He had bruises on his neck. And he had two large bruises on his head that he didn't have when he walked in three hours before. So the police said... You know, he must have had a heart attack and fell and bumped his head on something. Now, as far as his hand being split wide open, where you could see blood vessels, connective tissue, fatty tissue, you could put your finger down in his hand, it was split open just that wide, right? They said, oh, you know what? He came in like that. We just didn't see it. The person that fingerprinted both hands didn't see it. The guy that frisked him didn't see it. When he called his girlfriend on the phone and talked to her for five or ten minutes, he never mentioned it, and they never saw any blood. When he first got to the station and had him handcuffed to the wall for two hours while they filled out the report, they never saw it. But they said, you know, uh, he must have came in like that. We just didn't see it. So we took the case to trial, and we established that they were lying. We established that the medical examiner of Cook County helped to cover up the lie. Because the medical examiner said that, oh, he died from a heart attack. But the medical examiner also said that the heart attack occurred before, the, heart, the abrasions on his head occurred before the heart attack, based on the test that he did on the body. And I was like, well, doctor, I don't understand. If he died from a heart attack, fell and bumped his head, how did the bruises on his head occur before the heart attack? Didn't quite have an explanation for that one, right? He didn't have an explanation for how Mr. Grady had an abrasion all the way across his forearm that he left out of his autopsy report that looked like some handcuffs. He couldn't explain why he said he only did one autopsy, but according to his handwritten file, he did two. He couldn't explain why he said there were no fractures in his head, but yet the x-rays were messed up and you couldn't even make out different parts of his body. He couldn't explain why he did this test on his head to determine when the bruises occurred, but he never put the results of his test in his autopsy report. And we went to trial. The jury found the police not liable. So, no, we're not looking for not liable. We're looking for liable. We're looking for, we were looking for guilty on that one. But the jury... The jury said, not liable. They believe the... Now, each police officer that got on that stand said that Mr. Grady wasn't injured when, they came, when he came in. You're like, well, how did they say that? Well, the lawyer said that he was injured when he came in, but every defendant had to say that he was not injured when he came in because they were supposed to have taken him to the hospital if he was injured. So all five defendants got on the witness stand and said he wasn't injured, he wasn't bleeding, they never saw any bandage when he got in there. 
And the jury said, not liable. That's civil rights today. Because we were suing for Mr. Grady's civil rights. And so you get out here, you get these types of situations, you fight these fights, and then you get these kind of verdicts. And that's enough to discourage some people. Right? But because I've studied under people like Eddie Reed and Minister Louis Farrakhan and Jesse Jackson and Attorney Louis Myers and Dr. Conrad Worrell, we're not giving up the fight, so we're up on appeal now. But I'm saying that to you all because things are going to happen in your life that you don't think are going to be right. Things are going to happen to you even maybe in this school. You may get a grade on the test that you didn't think you deserved. Now, if you, if you decide to stop coming to school, that's on you. Because there's always going to be a reason to fight. That's why I am where I am. I wasn't born in the 60s, but clearly I'm taking up the fight now in 2000. And so we're going to need you all to take up the same fight. Because at some point, I want to retire. You know, Eddie, Eddie Reed is still on the battlefield, and I consider myself on the bench. So I'm like the sixth man coming off the bench whenever they want to take a break. And so at some point, I'm probably going to need to take a break, too. And we're going to need people like you to come off the bench and assist in the fight, whatever it's going to look like in the future. So that's my position on the state of civil rights today and where it looks like it's headed in a few years from now. You make sure you watch that movie. Maybe have a discussion. Maybe one of your professors will let you all entertain a discussion about it in their classrooms. And maybe... Um, We'll have a chance to answer some questions after it's over. Thank you very much. The, um, the next speaker is Eddie Reed, who uh, is part and parcel of the uh, civil rights movement that I mentioned earlier. Uh, before 1964 and the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, I'm going to ask Eddie Reed to come up and, and give a few uh, biographical uh, remarks about his lineage, how he got here, who he worked with, etc., and, um, and then present you with his um, analysis of where we are um, in terms of civil rights today. Eddie Reed. Thank you, David. Good, um, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'd like to make sure that if, at least if we're going to talk to people, that I'm talking to folk that's awake um, so that I will know that if you reject what I say, you reject it because you heard it and you don't agree with it, or if you accept what I say, you heard it and we can debate it. Um, I want to first say to my brother, David Johnson, a man who I have tremendous, and I've been told I have 15 minutes, and I'm going to do my best to stay as close to that as possible. Um, the truth doesn't take long to tell. When you start telling lies, then it takes a little longer. David Johnson is a man who I have known through my mentor and my teacher, a man named Lou Palmer, Luttrell Fleming Palmer, Jr., that some of you may know, a man who, uh, a champion freedom fighter, uh, whose shoulders I stand on today and was associated with since 
1981. Um, I'll just kind of start there, but I just want you to uh, give some respect if you have not done it. If you have done it, do it again and put your hands together and show some love for David Johnson, a real champion. To keep things going. To my young brother, Burvey Powers, I would rather sit and listen to Burvey because Burvey is a young brother who is on the come, and this man has the kind of vision. He has the, the humble spirit. He's bright. He's articulate. He's a throw-down kind of a brother. Don't let that suit and tie and that clean cut fool you because he moves with a level of intelligence, a level of focus, a level of purpose that I admire. You see, we talk about old school and new school. A lot of folk want to make me old school because I got gray hair. And I'm about 58 years old. I ain't really old school. I'm middle school. And the problem with new school and old school is middle school, my generation, has been on recess. If we come off recess and get back and take care of our business, We'll connect new school and old school, and a lot of the problems will go away. Just keep that in mind. A lot of the problems with what's going on right now, middle school has been on recess. So I want you to give it up for Burby Powers, John Brother. I started with Lou Palmer because Lou Palmer is, he means, uh, I can't even describe to you what Mr. Palmer means to me. He was like a father. Um, I met him in 1981. I joined Chicago Black United Communities in the Black Independent Political Organization in 1981. I became Lou Palmer's personal bodyguard, and I served as his bodyguard from 1981 until 1989 when the organization requested that I become the president. Now, I was a little bit shocked at that, Burby, because I was kind of a uh, little bit of a... Uh, that when I finished the movement, I went to play. You understand? I went out to have a good time and to play a little bit, so I really wasn't interested in being the president or being into leadership. I was more interested in taking care of my chief and then going to find out where the party is. So when the organization came to me and said that they wanted me to become the president, it was very surprising. I'm one of the few brothers in Chicago that was elected to my post by a group of people. I am not self-appointed. I am not somebody who woke up and started an organization. In 1989, November, a group of more than 120 people elected me to the presidency of Chicago Black United Communities and the Black Independent Political Organization. I stayed in that position until the death of Mr. Palmer on September the 12th, 2004, when upon his death we had agreed that I would be the chair. He appointed me to the chair of the organization before he made his transition. But we were there every step of the way. I was there as a soldier during the Harold Washington era. I didn't have a voice. Soldiers don't have voices. You just do what you do. And so you get a great vantage point when you are able to be a soldier. I remember Dorothy Tillman when she had her first hat. It was a tan kango. Now, y'all see all these beautiful hats she got now, but I remember Dorothy's tan kango. I say that to you because being on the front line and living through this, I remember when Mayor Washington spoke at Chicago Black United Communities Headquarters as the graduation speaker in 1981, and we were up in the building with our coats on because we didn't have a furnace. It was along about this time of the year. John Johnson from Ebony Magazine heard about this 
and donated a furnace to the organization so that we would actually have heat because we were meeting and organizing and didn't even have a furnace. That's how committed people were at that particular time. And then, of course, we're not here to talk about that particular uh, history per se. There's a agenda about the civil rights piece, but the brother talked about some of the lineage. I grew up in rural Virginia. I was born in 1949, so I went to high school. I went to school in the 50s and 60s. I graduated from high school in 1968. In rural Virginia, there was a um, uh, white high school exactly one mile from an oak tree in my yard. I was not able to attend that high school. I was bused 25 miles one way to an all-black high school. I had to get up and get on a bus at 6.15 in the morning to get to school by 8.30. So I rode a school. Yeah, how about that? Some of y'all don't want to go to the school and you live right around the block. You can't get there on time. But I had to get on a school bus at 6.15 in the morning because I couldn't go to that all-black high school that was one mile from this oak tree in my yard and ride all the way through mountains and, 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 and in Virginia, up hills and stuff. I remember particularly there was this creek that had this little bitty bridge, and whenever the creek flooded, the bus couldn't go over the bridge. So we had to turn back around and go another way, and that was about 45 minutes late getting to school just because you couldn't cross over that little bridge. And this was the whole thing of busing and that whole concept there. In 1968, in the state of Virginia, the issue of freedom of choice came so that you could go to the school of your choice. Well, in 1968, freedom of choice meant all the black students went back to the black schools, all the white students went to the white schools. We didn't want to go to the white schools, and they definitely didn't want to come to the black schools. I played high school football at a time when we got our football equipment from the, high, the white schools. The white schools got new equipment, and then I got the football equipment that was passed over to my school from the uh, white school. I played on a football team where a brother sat on the bench, and Burby, when a brother got hurt in the game, if he didn't have, we didn't have enough cleats to go around, so some, that brother got hurt. You hope that his cleats fit him. I'm not telling you something I saw on TV. I'm telling you something that I lived. I lived in that environment. And so the reality of it is, in 1969, along with the laws and along with these transitions, along came forced integration in Virginia in 1969. So at that particular point in time, you had to go where they told you to go. There was only one school, as I can remember, in Richmond, Virginia, as anyone here is from the Virginia area, called Maggie Walker. It was an incredible high school, if I remember correctly. I remember that when Maggie Walker and Armstrong, Arthur Ashe comes out of a community called Church Hill. And Church Hill in Richmond was pretty much like Robert Taylor and Cabrini combined. And so he comes out of that area there and became a famous tennis player. The reason I bring that up is because those high schools there remained major high schools when every other black high school in the state of Virginia became a middle school. Every other black high school, if you check it today, became a middle school. And the only school that we were allowed to graduate from, I graduated in 68, so I missed it. I graduated from my black high school. After that, the black students graduated from the white high schools. There was no black high school that was able to be a 
high school for white students to go and graduate from a Paul Lawrence Dunbar or a Roberson. It didn't happen. They graduated from places like E.C. Glass and Liberty, if you follow what I'm saying. And these black schools, high schools became middle schools, and then the white schools remained as the senior high schools, and students graduated from that. So I lived through the whole piece. Um, I was 18 when I graduated from high school, so we had a little involvement in the so-called civil rights movement in rural Virginia. When we marched, we didn't have no big federal building and stuff. When we marched against the Vietnam War, when we marched against poverty, we marched around the post office. <laughs> and the reason we marched around the post office because it was the only federal building there. We didn't have any other federal building to complain about what we were doing, so we marched around the post office. And that's what we did. Where do we go now with civil rights? Obviously, Martin King, people like Reverend Jesse Jackson, James Bevel. I met um, James Bevel some 30 years ago. Didn't even know who he was. Does this group know who James Bevel is? Anybody know who James Bevel? You need to, y'all do all that Google and stuff? You need, <laughs> you need to Google James Bevel. James Bevel, B-E-V-E-L. I don't know if it's one L or two L. One L. James Bevel, who sat with Minister Farrakhan and was part of the architect of the Million Man March. James Bevel was also one of the architects with Dr. King as they put together the movement, the Poor People's Campaign, that whole piece. And, in fact, James Bevel, many said, was the original country preacher and not Reverend Jackson. So Bevel is a, a brilliant man, and I don't know that he's still in the city of Chicago. I think he had a little challenges recently. So um, we, I don't go by what I read in the paper. I go by what... I know on the street. I said, I don't go by what I read in the paper. I go by what I know on the street. Newspapers sell papers. But um, Reverend Bevel, if you were able to get to him and he's available, he'd be someone good to, to talk with you. I think as we go forward looking at the civil rights piece now, there are several things that we face. Malcolm said the ballot of the bullet. King said, where do we go from here? Chaos our community. Well, I think we've ended up in chaos, and it seems like we're choosing a lot of bullets. Every time I turn around and I look at the 10 o'clock news or on the street, somebody's getting gunned down. How do we go from not making the ballot a greater priority than the bullet? How do we go from not making community more, uh, making chaos more of a, pro a priority than community? And so I think that in order for us to look at civil rights, we have to define in today's contemporary terms what is civil rights today? How is it relevant? And that's part of what we are to talk about today. I'm not smart enough to answer all those questions. As an organizer, what I like to do is to bring people together to be able to have us focus. I believe in a bottom-up process. When you have the people and you lift the people up, the people guide you. Barack Obama right now, the fascination, I met Barack Obama in 1987. He was working with Project Leap. And um, he had some voter registration money, which Lou Palmer told him he didn't want. You know, Brother Lou was a very firm man and very careful about where he took money from. 
but I met him as a young organizer in 1987. He's got a lot of young people, but the question that I raise, and you have to be careful when you're saged out here, and as Marcus Garvey says, men who are in earnest are not afraid of consequences, you raise questions in earnesty and sincerity. Where when people become enthralled with a personality, they take it as an attack. It's not about attacking. We are not playing the politics of power in our community. We're not playing the politics of power in this country. We're playing the politics of personality. We are playing the politics of personality. And any time you get into the politics of personality and you get away from a coordinated effort in terms of power, yesterday we had an election. But how many people got elected or how many people got significant votes at other levels of government that would affect the impoverished? Huh? So if we play in the politics of power like we did back in the day, like Lou Palmer did with Harold Washington, Harold Washington didn't just get elected. About 18 black aldermen get elected with Harold Washington. How many congressmen around the country is going to get elected with our brother who's running for president? How many new city uh, council people? How many state reps? We had some key state reps that were running that should have gotten elected yesterday. We got a young brother named Will Burns elected. When you play the politics of power and when you play versus the politics of personality, then you raise up these elements that allow you to be able to control this thing called civil rights. Where do we go from here with civil rights? We must elect the type of legislators who make laws that will protect us in the areas we need to be protected. And human rights, or, you know, um, black to me, I looked at it and it addressed the black community and what have you, black to me is not a shade of color. Black to me is an ideology. When I use the word black, I ain't talking about your hue, how dark you are, or whatever. I'm talking about an ideology. That's what black means to me. Mr. Farrakhan doesn't have a real dark hue, but he's a real black man. You understand? And I know some cats that's blacker than blue that shoot and sell dope. So it's an ideology, and we must be able to recognize the ideology. I'm at the 15-minute mark. I would say to you is that what do we face as we try to deal with this whole thing of the civil rights piece? Diversity. I got some challenges with diversity because I'm not sure what it means. I don't really know if I know what it means. My world of diversity would be described like this. Not a melting pot where I lose my identity, but a salad bowl. In the salad bowl, and let me, I forgot to say this, uh, brother, my views and opinions may not be those of Moraine Valley College. It may not be those of <laughs> Professor David Johnson or the staff. Or the, I forgot to do that. <laughs> and I don't want nobody to get in trouble, you understand what I'm saying? And I'm kind of tempering it because I really can kind of cut loose. But um, I'm going into an area now where I want to make sure that I say that. And I don't need... Uh, my white brothers and sisters in the room to become alienated by the truth. When God stopped making black people, I'll stop fighting on behalf of black people. As long as he keeps making black people, I'm going to recognize black and I'm going to fight like hell for black. Now, don't get mad with me because I'm fighting for black because God made black people. You get mad with God because he made black people. 
The other side of the equation is I believe in the salad bowl phenomenon and not the melting pot. The salad bowl phenomenon means that all the white guys are lettuce. You got Italians, you got Irish, you have Jewish people, you have Polish people, you got romaine lettuce, you got iceberg lettuce. If you ain't got no lettuce in the salad, it ain't nothing but a bowl of vegetables. So in America, the white males are going to be the solid. Then you got your red peppers, your orange peppers, your, your green peppers, and then you got onions and tomatoes. The women are the cauliflower. Thank God for cauliflower. Thank God for women. Cauliflower is a little bit different. Thank God. I ain't being negative about it. Cauliflower is a little bit different kind of a vegetable. So y'all represent the cauliflower. I'm not interested in throwing the cauliflower out the bowl, the lettuce out the bowl, the red peppers out the bowl. My job in life that God has asked me to do is to put black olives in that salad. And everywhere I go, I try to put black olives in the equation. When I go to a restaurant and I sit down with my family, my wife starts looking at me because the first thing I'm going to do, Burby, I'm looking for the black olives. If it ain't no black olives in there, I'm going to ask the people where the black olives are. How many of y'all find black olives in your salad without going to a Greek or Mediterranean restaurant? Yeah, that's unusual. But anyway, the reality here is that I think where we go in terms of the civil rights piece is that we elect in, in the role, in a so-called democracy, the role of government is to make the playing field level for all of its citizens. And the way you make the playing field level is through your elected officials. And the way we ensure civil rights is we come up with policy, we come up with agendas. You, as young people, come up with these agendas and put them on the table. When you look at King and you look at the movement, it was young people. It was young high school students. Young people can take risk. A lot of old cats, they got Visa, they got American Express, American Express, they got Lexus, they got all kinds of stuff, houses and notes. They ain't trying to risk that. The young people make the move that affect the policy changes in this country. And I submit to you that today in America, the biggest problem with young people is some old people. I said I submit to you today in America, the biggest problem with some young people is old people. And we need to try to come together. The other thing in terms of the civil rights piece is to take a look and define civil rights. I was looking on here. I would like, if not today, I would like to hear the definition of civil rights as you define it, as your professor define it. What is civil rights? We know what civil rights meant back in the day. Civil rights back in the day, I grew up Johnson Department Store in Bedford, Virginia. I had to drink out of water faucet while the white folks drank out of a water cooler with nice cold water. If I had to drink out of that, I would have been arrested. I grew up in Virginia when I would go to a bathroom that said colored. It didn't say colored men. It didn't say colored women. It said colored. The other bathroom said white men and white women. I'm not telling you what I saw on TV on the PBS channel. I'm telling you what I lived. You follow what I'm saying? This is exactly what I lived. So the civil rights then, how many black people ran off the road and had accidents because they couldn't get in hotels? They couldn't sleep. You follow? So the issue today, back then we were changing those type of things to make right. I rode on the back of the bus 
when I worked in a hospital and would get off work late at night and catch the Greyhound bus home because I lived out in the country. Fall asleep on the bus. Nobody woke me up. I woke up 10 miles away from my house, running, pulled a chain, and now I got to walk 10 miles in the dark, running past the graveyard. I don't know why I did that, but... <laughs> The point I make to you is, what is civil rights today, and I hope in this conference, in this discussion, we'll have some open dialogue, is what civil rights means to you and what it means to me. What it means to me is being able to have the privileges, the opportunities and conditions of any other people that live in this country based on what the laws and the rights on the books say that I'm entitled to. What I think we do today is we have a legislators who put that agenda forward, we embrace, and then we deal with this whole thing. Young black men are being attacked. Young black women. You notice how many women? What's going on in this society right now that women are being hurt so bad? Every time I turn my TV on, I mean, what, what is that about? How do we get there? How do we get to a place where people are putting women in blue trash cans and, and putting them How do we get there? So, I appreciate the brothers um, inviting me. I don't have the intellectual capacity that these professors and lawyers have. I'm just a regular brother from the hood, and I bring it about as regular as you can get it. Asante Sama. We want to, uh, we put a time limit on each speaker because we wanted to have some time for some dialogue between you and the panel. And I just want to quickly sum up um, what we've heard today. Uh, Burby Power talked about the value of education, the value of education. And he stressed uh, academic excellence. He talked about the route that he took, but he wound up being a high-performing, academically excellent student, but equally important is his commitment to social responsibility. That's one thing to be a good student. It's another thing to use your skills and your education on behalf of your family, your community, your country, and your people. So academic excellence and social responsibility. Eddie Reed talked about politics and the value of a bottom-up political movement where the people are driving the change in the community. And the people means each and every one of us in here, each and every one of you. And that the best type of political movement is not one of personality, but one that's coordinated to bring power and resources back to your neighborhoods and to your community. Eddie talked about diversity and he used this very colorful and wonderful example of the salad bowl. Well, there's nothing wrong with being for your people. Because you're pro-black doesn't mean you're anti-anybody else. That you have to love yourself. If we had a Polaroid camera, took a picture of this crowd, gave each and every one of you a picture, the first thing you would do is want to know how you came out. There's nothing wrong with being in love with yourself and your people and your community. It's human nature. It's a violation of nature to not do that. Brother Power talked about globalization and the coming of a single currency. 
in this country called the Amero. And that we need to be able to merge what Eddie talked about being active locally, but we need to understand the world. That your competitors are the people next to you, the people at other high schools in Chicago, but they're also people on the other side of the world. So call your internet service provider. Call a computer company, and you're going to get someone with an accent on the other side of the world. And they know more about us than, they know, than we know about them. They know more about you than you know about them. And in addition to that, they want to come here. That's the immigration part of this. Everybody wants to come here. And when they get here, they're willing to work for less, work harder, and without any back talk. And so that makes them attractive to business people because business people are trying to fatten their bottom line, their profit. That's the world that we're living in today. We need to, we need to understand it. Now, just one quick commercial, and I don't know this person personally, but her name is Naomi Klein. For your teachers and for you, this book, The Shock Doctrine, is a good summation of what we've heard today. We've only touched upon a few pages that's contained in the shock doctrine. Uh, and Naomi Klein has done a superb job of documenting what Burby Powell talked about, what Eddie Reed has talked about, is documented in here. And the interesting thing is that the recipe for the shock doctrine was developed right here in Chicago at the University of Chicago. And I'm sure everybody knows where Hyde Park and the University of Chicago is. I doubt, however, if everybody has ever heard of Milton Friedman. Heard of Milton Friedman? This is the man who's responsible for the shock doctrine that Burby Powell talked about that's afflicting this country. And I encourage everybody to, uh, to get this book and to read it. Uh, so that we'll better understand what's happening in our society today. Now, we want to throw it open for some questions and some dialogue from you all. So please um, simply raise your hand. We'll, we'll acknowledge you. And anything you want to ask of Burvey, Eddie, or myself, uh, please feel free to do that. And not everybody at once. <laughs> Mr. Thomas. The past, what are some specific things that 16 to 18-year-olds can do to enhance civil rights for black people? Let me, uh, let me start by saying this. If you want to build a house, you got to have the plans first. And you have to have the skilled individuals to do it. And you also have to have the materials to do it. And so to answer your question, how do you enhance civil rights if you're 16, 18, the first thing you got to do is clear the slate. Because it's like building a house on quicksand. You got to lay the, found, the right foundation. And what do I mean by that? Many of you are students. The first thing you do when you get in the car is do what? Turn on the radio. 
the first thing you do is turn on the radio, right? And one of the things that you really don't appreciate, right, is that when you listen to certain songs, thoughts get put in your head and you never even thought anything about it. All the commercials that are playing, never thought anything about it. Let me, let me, let me, let me prove what I'm saying. You all ever gotten out of a car when a, when a song was playing? And you sang that song the whole day? Because it was, that's right, that's right. Now y'all with me, right? Okay, good. That's exactly what I'm saying, right? That was the last song you heard when you got out the car and you sang it all day. But the rate, the music had stopped. R. Kelly wasn't singing anymore. But in your head, you heard that song. So that whatever that song is, is conditioning your mind for the rest of that day. Okay? And I was listening to, a, I watched this interview with uh, Ja Rule. You know what he said? He talked about his song, this is an old interview, his song, Clap Back. Y'all remember that song? Basically what that means. Somebody push up on you, clap back, right? Well, the record label that he worked for, they said, look, you can play this song on BET, but we're not going to play it on MTV. And Ja Rule was like, well, well, why is that? Oh, that's right. Our people don't listen to or watch MTV. But we watch BET. Right? For the most part. Y'all get what I'm saying. Right? You can hear a whole lot of songs on MTV that, that you don't listen to regularly. That you don't get played on BET. The point I'm trying to make is this. Somebody in the record industry made a decision that it's okay for y'all to listen to certain songs. But not for other communities to listen to certain songs. So it's okay for y'all to clap back. But it's not okay for others to clap back. The point I'm trying to make is there are a lot of images and a lot of messages that are put in our minds every day. So for the most part, I don't watch TV. For the most part, I don't listen to the radio. Because somebody else is deciding what I should think about. Every time I hear a song, you know, that I didn't put the CD in for to listen to. And so to answer your question, the first thing that needs to happen is you got to recognize that other folk are in fact affecting your thinking. So if you want to do something in your life, the first thing you got to do is shut out all these other folk messages in your head. Just consider and try, if you will, not turning the radio on every time you get in the car. Consider, if you will, not watching four hours of TV a day. And there are other things like this book, The Shock Doctrine, and there's other messages that you learn. There are a lot of things I didn't learn until I got out of high school. I didn't know about the Buffalo Soldiers. I didn't know about the Tuskegee Airmen. I didn't know about Toussaint Overture, who was the brother in Haiti who defeated Napoleon on the island of Haiti. That would have inspired me as a young black student, but I didn't learn about them. The point I'm trying to make is there are a lot of things that could help these students and help you all fight the good fight in the civil rights movement and other fights if you but had that knowledge and information. So the first thing you got to do from my vantage point is clear the slate. Get all this other stuff off the table, and then you decide what you put into your mind. I would say that, yeah, go ahead. I said that Burby is, is very much on target. Lou Palmer had a saying. He said, our minds are messed up because another people put symbols, images, messages on our minds. Well, we have now gone to putting the destructive symbols images and messages 
on our minds. I think one of the things that you need to do, we go through life getting into a routine and don't realize where we are. Now that sounds like a real, that's a simple statement. Every night before I close my eyes, every night before I close my eyes, I go back through that whole day. I review my behavior, my words, everything before I go to sleep. I recognize that, man, I said that to her, or he said that to me, or I was acting like that. So what I do is I assess myself. As young people, one of the things that you need to do to be able to clear the slate is to understand what's on the slate. And the way you understand what's on the slate is to build some very simple practices in place. Tonight, before you go to sleep, when you sit in your bed, there's something about the dark. There's something spiritual and magical about darkness. God comes at 2 o'clock in the morning when you can't see the street light. Go in a room somewhere and shut down all light, all everything. God will come there. And or by whatever name you call him or her. I have to believe God's a black woman myself. You know, I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah, I got no problem with it. You know, brother couldn't do all that. But let me just say that in the reality of it, uh, and they put Eve on the front of Time magazine. I'm cracking, but I'm cracking. They put Eve on the Time magazines a few years ago and said that that's the only person who could make that. See, I'm not afraid of blackness. I don't have hatred, contempt in my heart for white people, for Latinos. I don't have that in my spirit. So I'll say what I want to say. Now, if you want to twist my words around and do something destructive with it, that's on you. I don't live. I don't work out that kid, as y'all say. And so you need to be able to reflect every day when you shut down. What did I say today? What did I wear today? How did I look today? Did I project the power that I feel inside? Do I have any power inside? How do I get it? So assess your behavior every night. We get a close of the day. The first meal in the morning is called break the fast. We fast every night whether we want to or not when we shut down and go to sleep. So before we fast... Take a spiritual moment and reflect on what you did, what you said, what did you look like. And when you get up and look in the mirror, don't see. I can't believe Some folks just ain't got mirrors, bro. I mean, there's no way they can have a mirror in their house. And I ain't talking about getting cute and stuff. I'm talking about just looking ridiculous. You know, I've never met an ugly person in my life. I've met some people that have acted ugly. I have never seen an ugly person. I've never met a poor person. I hate people saying poor people. I have met people who live in poverty. I ain't never met no poor people, and I ain't never met no ugly people. I done met some people that act ugly. What's in your mind? Because that thing, as brother is talking about, when you get out the car, but where it really hits you is when you lay down at night and go to sleep. And that thing go down in your subconscious. There's a whole third world called the Azaludic world, which is beyond your subconsciousness. And that thing stays inside of you, and it grows, and it becomes a part of who you are. You start to act it out. For the brothers, what is sagging spelled backwards? Don't be afraid to say it. Niggas. See, I'm not opposed to using the word nigger. I'm a, I believe in using it correctly. All right? No sagging. What's up with that? That's crazy. So the point I'm making here, and sisters, when you leave the house, 
let me recognize you for more than, you know what I'm saying? Don't just take me there right now. Let me meet and talk and let me experience a lot more about you than how you wear your jeans or how you wear your top or how you wear your hair. We cause people to gravitate us and focus to us based on what we putting out there. So before you shut down at night, did you put out there today what you want to put out there? And now you're going to put out there tomorrow what you need to put out there. Let me come at it a slightly uh, different way. How many of you have know someone or have ever had the experience of the police being called to your home? Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, Dr. King, one of, one of the powerful messages of Dr. King was that he connected, and this is what Burvey and Eddie have talked about, he connected personal change with the type of change we want to see. That in order to change this country, we have to change ourselves. And it starts inside of our families. That in our families, we should never have to call an outside force into the middle of our family. We should never have to call an outside force into the middle of our family. I used to be the mayor of Harvey, Illinois. I came home one day and the police department were in front of my house. The neighbors were up in arms. It's because the police, the Harvey police, had beaten this boy terribly. And so I told people to go back in the house and talk to the police officer. And what had happened was this guy came home, this young fellow came home with, with another of his friends and his sister had mopped the floors, cleaned the house. She wanted him to take off his shoes. He didn't take off his shoes and they tracked through the house. So she called the police. They got to argue. She called the police. The police came. The young brother gave him some mouth. The police beat his behind. When I got there, I talked to the police, I talked to her, and I said to her, why did you call the police? She said, because I've seen my mother call the police on my father so many times. And in other words, she had seen this tradition of calling in forces outside the family to resolve problems that should have been discussed and mediated inside the family context. So in answer to Mr. Thomas's questions, one of the things that we can do, you can do, is recognize that the greatest resource you'll have, one of the greatest resources you'll have is your family. That's right. Your parents, your grandparents. You need to talk to them and learn learn their history. And we need to figure out how to resolve as many of our complaints and issues within the context of our family. And then we take that out to our neighbors and we take it out into the community so that we begin to change ourselves and we begin to transform our communities. And we do that by cleaning the slate 
and being clear about the messages that we allow in. That we control our homes, the environment in our homes, the music we listen to, the literature we read, and begin to study our history and develop respect for ourselves and each other. It's a, it's a very basic principle that the basic of government, the basis of government and self-rule is the family. We have to resurrect and strengthen and fortify our families because in the final analysis, that's who's going to be there for you. to uh, schools. In fact, I was a graduation speaker for Limbloom High School a couple of years back. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like Eddie, you know, and I, I say you, you learn from folk like this and then you end up like them. So I tell them don't complain when I get out there too bad. But one of the things that I tell the teachers at these schools is that you can't feed a cat dog food and expect it to be okay. Mm. So when I was in school, you look at the history books, you know, our tests were all about George Washington, all about Abraham Lincoln, all about Andrew Jackson. You know, to some people they were great men. To others they were slaveholders. And so, you know, George Washington and Andrew Jackson, they don't have, and Thomas Jefferson don't have a high place on my um, honorable list. But if you taught students about what would inspire them, you'll see a different reaction in the students. And I say, you know, I, I put that on the teachers more so than the students. Because these young folk coming up, they, they know what you put in front of them. And so I started a reading club when I was in law school. Started a reading club at my high school. Wherein I would leave my law school class early one day a week. I told my teacher what I was doing, I said, listen, uh, I understand I'm in law school. I understand you're my professor. But there's some black students over at my old high school that I need to reach. And so I'm going to be leaving your class early, one day a week, so I can go get to my reading club. He understood. He was like, okay. Even if he wasn't okay, I was going to do it anyway. But the point I'm trying to make is, in our reading club, we read Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington. We read The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man by James Weldon Johnson. We read Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Linda Brent, which wasn't her real name. It was a fictitious name made up to cover her identity because when it was written, she was still alive and they didn't want the slaveholders to know who she was. The point I'm trying to make is, and in fact about it, we read a, a book called Bullwhip Days. And Bullwhip Days is just what it was. Talked about slavery and the use of the bullwhip. And there was this Slave in the uh, a slaveholder in the book 
with a really unique name. Real unique name. And wouldn't you know one of the students in the class had the exact same name? The point I'm trying to make is you've got to reach a people so when they hear something about the, the background of Ida B. Wells Barnett and how she fought against lynching in the South by herself, would get on this woman would get on the bus and go down south and fight against lynching. Well that's inspiring to me. Because she was fighting for the rights of my ancestors. But, you know, George Washington crossing the Delaware don't do anything for me, actually. And so you got students that zone out. They zone out in class. Because the folk that they're learning about don't quite teach me. Yeah, everybody needs to learn math and you need to learn science. But what inspires me to do what I'm doing is reading and knowing about the folks who came before me that paved the way for me to be a lawyer today or to be up here on this panel talking to you all students today. And so I would put it not on the students but on the teachers because, in fact, about it, you know, if, if I used to teach at, at Kennedy King, in fact, and as an instructor, you all know here, instructors, you know here, if, you, if all your students get an F, the administrators look at you. Is that right? They look at you because they're saying you're not doing something right. And so while some of my students needed to get some F's, I knew I couldn't give them F's because, you know, I wouldn't be there or they'd throw me out or whatever. But the point I'm trying to make is it's on the instructors, in my opinion, to find a way to reach the students. And what I'm saying is these black students would be more inspired if they learned more about black history. And that would make them a better student, I think than them zoning out all day when they think that school has nothing to do about them and history has nothing to do about them. And I think that slavery can be taught the right way. But in history books that I've looked at when I've gone back to my own high school, it had one paragraph. Slavery lasted 310 years in America. How does it get one paragraph in a book? And before I turn it over to Eddie, let me make my one point. I, I read the autobiography of um, Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman, what I didn't know is, she had a uh, deficiency where she would just fall asleep immediately in the middle of a conversation. And the reason why she did that is because her slave master threw a brick at her when she was 14 and hit her upside her head. And she was never right ever since, but she still made a contribution of freeing slaves in the South. So I listened to this uh, leadership tape by J uh, John Maxwell. And he's talking about all these people who are inspiring. He talked about Harriet Tubman. This is a white guy. And he talked about Harriet Tubman. And he talked about her deficiency. She said even with her deficiency, she still went on and made all these trips to the South freeing the slaves. But the way he said he got her deficiency is she got into a fight when she was a teenager. Yeah, see, that's telling the story just a little bit differently than how Harriet Tubman told it. She said her slave master threw a brick at her and hit her upside the head. But the white guy said she got into a fight. So that's, that's a little, if I heard, only heard that story that way, I, I wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't quite touch me. If I knew that somebody threw a brick and hit her upside the head, and that's why she had that deficiency. Not to say you should go around hating white folk. I'm like, Eddie, just because, you know, Democrats speak for Democrats. Republicans speak for Republicans. Gays and lesbians speak for gays and lesbians. I'm a young black man. I speak on behalf of young black folk. And so I'm telling you that if the professors talk to students things that would reach them, you would see a different caliber of student. I think you have. Go ahead. I think everything that Brother said is absolutely correct. But to expand upon that, there is something called community. 
I believe in my organization, not only do I deal with uh, Chicago Black United Communities, which is advocacy, and the Black Independent Political Organization, which is partisan politics, we also have an organization called United Services of Chicago. United Service of Chicago has 32 employees, and we train people in the construction trades. We have an office in East St. Louis and do a lot of other things. Our concept is called the community of work. In the community of work, if you get a job on the expressway or on a, on a job site and that sister gets a job out there, you are responsible for her. And she's responsible for you. In the community of work, you have to join together. We don't have the community of education anymore. We live in apartments. We are apart from each other. We're not in this community. When you're in the community, we're joined together. Am I making sense? When you join together in the community, that means that whatever. Victoria, my assistant who's traveling with me, ended up a part of her life raising her children as a single mother. It was interesting for her, for me to listen to her about how she made an arrangement with a librarian so that when her children got out of school, they would go to the library. They weren't, they weren't latchkey kids. Well, I don't like the word kid. Kids are goats. They weren't latchkey children. They didn't go home, unlock the door, and let themselves in and watch, um, I don't know, Tom and Jerry or whoever. Spon no, SpongeBob went back oh. there then. <laughs> Tom and Jerry and, 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 and Bugs Bunny and that dude that kept blowing everything up. That chasing that the coyote, yeah. I don't you know you know, children children live what they learn. If your mom and daddy fighting and Bugs Bunny blowing everybody up on the T V, then when you leave the house you're gonna be fighting and blowing everybody up and I mean, that's what happened. Children live what they learn. So the community of interest, the community of education, the community of learning, the community of work, we've got to get back to what King talked about, community of chaos. If we redevelop community, we will get away from chaos. I live in Hyde Park. I don't live in East Side. Well, I live four blocks from Barack Obama, but he lives in a much different house than I do. In Hyde Park, about 10 years ago, they took all the basketball courts down from the schools. Could you, how do you take basketball courts down from the schoolyard? So what did I do? I went and bought some basketball courts and put them up and would take them down at night and start running basketball clinics. Sports is a great way to grab you, but you've got to do something beyond that basketball and that football. And so we put the basketball hoops up. The guy living right across the yard from, first of all, I don't know why nobody would build a $300,000 house right across from a basketball court. That's kind of crazy in the first place. He called the police and said, shots fired on the basketball court. The police came, it was about dust dark, the police came from everywhere. There was a young brother walking across the court, going to the street with an umbrella on his arm. The police drew down on him. Because they saw the umbrella and thought it was a gun. This young man could have gotten shot down in cold blood over an umbrella. You know who the jackrabbit? <laughs> the jackrabbit who called you. Yeah, there's another word to go there. The jackrabbit that called the police. Another police officer who lived across the court that didn't want those children playing basketball 
on the basketball. Where are they supposed to play basketball? So we have gotten away from community, brother. If we get back to the community of education, the community of work, and just the community period and stop living apart from each other, children live what they learn, what they see. You take a two-year-old child that doesn't talk. I, I don't know how long they, and you cussing around that child, and you doing and saying all kinds of crazy stuff. How long did they, I mean, how much earlier were they learning what you were showing them before they was able to speak? Children live what they learn. Mama, stop dragging them babies in the street and hollering at them. If you, let me tell you something. If you can't get Johnny straightened out at the crib, you ain't going to get him straightened out at the mall. I'm just trying to tell you. If you don't get him straightened out at the crib, you ain't going to get him straightened out at the mall. This country's gone through three major transitions. Um, what's the strongest muscle in your body? The brain. The brain. We've talked a lot today about slavery. We could talk about work being done with machines. Today, work is done with the mind. It's an it's a intellectual endeavor. You pay, people pay Burby power for his mind as an attorney. People are hired here for the development of their mind. It's the development of your mind that each and every one of you have to be responsible for. Um, so that regardless of whether or not the curriculum is relevant, regardless of whether or not the teacher is profound, you have to have the discipline and the focus to come away with your education. There was a question here. Did, did you have a question? I thought I saw a hand here. I'd like to hear some young folks. Y'all yeah. have something on your mind. Right. Well, I think, I think we're wrapping up, but let me, let me just say this one last thing to the students. Uh, and that is, there, there's an old saying, it's probably not true, but it was just to make a point. And that is, you know, there were two little boys playing in Africa, and they were kicking around these little pieces of glass that they thought, and somebody came along and said, hey, you mind if I get that little piece of glass you're playing around? Oh, yeah, sure, no problem. Here, they're all over the place. And the person, you know, they didn't realize that they were diamonds that they were kicking around, right? The point I'm trying to make is, when you all have people like Eddie Reed and Professor come before you, you got to figure out a way to take advantage of those diamonds, right? And I, I don't consider myself one. I'm, I'm striving to be one. That's why you are one. But the point that I'm trying to make is always find a way to ask a question. Unless you know everything that they're saying already, then there's no need to ask. But if you're trying to get somewhere, find a way to ask a question and mine out of the people, whether it's your, your professors, whether it's somebody you just come across that is doing something, find a way. Because there's something, you know, that you need in your life that is a key and can be a key to unlock the door to have you somewhere in a different space. So always, whenever they, whenever they have panel discussions or even in your teachers in class, find a way to ask a question that's directed to you. That Be selfish. Ask a question that the answer can be directed to you and that you can use so that you can use it to get to where you're trying to go. All right? Well, 
Let me just simply say I, I thank um, Brother Johnson for having the opportunity to come here. I thank you for coming here. You showed some dedication on this day. And my brother Burby here uh, for being on the panel. I was hoping that Dr. Conrad World was going to be here because he has a very interesting perspective on blackness. And I wanted to be able to engage him in some debate here today. Conrad and I have known each other for 25 years. And I know that he was going to say some things that I was going to jump him on. And we're going to have a little fun in here today. So I understand he's under the weather. But let me just say this in closing. The immigration thing, we, be careful with that. Be careful beating up on people because they're trying to find a better living. Be careful with a lot of that stuff. And my closing remark would be this little story. A long time ago, there were two men down in Mississippi working on a voters', voters rights campaign. They were trying to get people registered to vote. And one was a Christian and one was a Muslim. And so they were traveling in this long lonely road down in Mississippi and the car broke down and so they had to get out and walk and most of you don't know that there are bears in Mississippi and so these two gentlemen were walking down the road because they this white station wouldn't fix their car so they were walking down this road to get their car fixed and as they were going down this road, they looked way down the road and they saw these two bears. And the Christian brother said, I think them as Christian bears. I think they're nonviolent bears. I think they're going to be all right. They won't bother us. The Muslim brother said, man, them bears, I don't care what they are, they're going to hurt us. Bears eat people. And right about that time, the bears fell down on their knees. And the, brother, the Christian brother said to his Muslim brother, I told you they was Christian bears. Look at them. They are on their knees praying. They are nonviolent bears. So they looked at those bears, and they had fell on their knees in a prayerful position. And so the Christian brother convinced the Muslim brother to walk past the bears. Well, as they got closer to those bears, they heard the bears saying, Dear Lord, please make us thankful for the food we're about to receive for the nourishment of our body. It's a funny story, but my very simple message to you is that my grandmama used to say it like this. Everybody look like you, act like you, ain't with you. Everybody don't look like you, don't act like you, ain't again you. Get to know people, get to know their character, get to know what they're about, and then you know if they're with you or they're against you. If they're with you, then you roll. If they're against you, then you fight them. I want to thank everyone for coming. Real, real quick, I just want to um, thank Adrian Stewart who helped us put this together and support this. And thank um, uh, Joanne Wright for doing this, Willa Johnson who really helped, and of course uh, David Johnson has been a great partner and uh, it's a real special, special day. Uh, Dr. Worrell did leave me a message that he's under the weather and I hope, Mr. Reed, that maybe next year we can invite both of you to come back and I'd love to hear that debate. So uh, if our college doesn't have these discussions, we're not hearing this in our newspapers, on the TV, I don't know who else will be doing these kind of things. So without you in the audience, we can't have these discussions. So thanks for coming and uh, get home safe in the weather. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. 
For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.